and thank you for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. And tonight we're very lucky to have uh, Professor Martin Bergman, who's the Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia. It's a pleasure to have you join today. We're going to discuss one of your recent papers, which looks at an important topic, the one-year medication adherence and persistence in rheumatoid arthritis clinical practice. It's a retrospective analysis of upadacitinib, adalimumab, baricitinib, and tofacitinib that was recently published in Advances in Therapeutics. And that paper will be available on the CSF website with some slides and discussion. And we look forward to talking to Marty, who's an old friend. So Marty, why don't you start by telling the group just a little bit about yourself and where you work and what your interests are. Uh, well, I'm Marty Bergman. I, I am a, in solo practice, uh, but I also have a clinical appointment. I, I've actually been promoted, so I actually am now a full clinical professor rather than associate. So I have a bigger title, but they stayed the same, so it didn't matter. Uh, but <laughs> I'm, uh, I work just outside of Philadelphia, uh, but uh, right now I'm in the, the beautiful New Jersey shore, uh, looking just about a hundred yards from the Atlantic ocean and, uh, enjoying for me, what is a, it looks to be a slightly overcast, but always beautiful morning. Excellent. Excellent. Now that's not near Atlantic casino, is it Marty? Actually, uh, I'm on an island that is just north of the Atlantic city, uh, casinos. Uh, you, if you go out my front door and look down a little south, you can actually see them in the distance. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the study now. But before we do, can you give us a bit of a feel for the jack market in the U.S.? Um, what the access is like as far as your regulators and reimbursers forced you to do before you can get to a jack? And just how oral surveillance has affected the jack market? Uh, so the, the jacks are all available. We only have uh, we have three. We we have a uh, baricitinib, tofacitinib, and ubiquitinib. Uh, we also have restricted in our doses. So the uh, tofacitinib is five milligrams BID or eleven milligrams once a day. Baricitinib we only have the two milligram dose. And the upadacitinib is uh, is at fifteen milligrams. Uh, the access is restricted, uh, as it, with uh, our commercial markets. There are a fair amount of hoops that are necessary that you have to jump through. Uh, it depends on the insurance company, and you know, as I don't know how much you know about the American medical system, but there are literally hundreds of insurance companies. And each insurance company has its own plan, its own uh, structure, its own prerequisites. So one may say I can use upadacitinib early. One may say, no, I have to first go with Delta. Another may say, no, I have to first use uh, abatacin. You know, it's, it is totally random. A lot has to do, frankly, with who paid what. Uh, access, though, is 
once you can get through the pre-approval process, access is actually very easy. And for the most part, the jacks are relatively easy to get to. But as you alluded, Peter, uh, the uh, the FDA has changed everything. So we are no longer able to use a jack without the TNF failure. So you must have taken a TNF before a jack can even be considered, unless there is a strict contraindication to a TNF, which there aren't a lot of strict contraindications. So you have to jump through a TNF first, and that has been clearly been impacted by the, uh, the clinical trials and surveillance study. No question. Now, okay, now our market here, the JAX and Actemra have a lot of the monotherapy market, which can be up to 30% of most practices. Is it similar in the US? Actemra freely available, JAX, as you said, restricted but available, and they own the monotherapy market? Uh, I would say not as much in the United States uh, for reasons that somewhat always baffle me. Uh, TNFs are used a lot in the United States as monotherapy. It's not something that I, I agree with, but it is something that you see when you look at numbers. There are a fair number of patients who are on TNF monotherapy. But the other way around is to say that very often the JACs and the IL-6s are used as monotherapy. And so is the adalimumab biosimilars also invading the U.S. market? We've got about four or five of them here. We've even got a 0.4 mil citrate-free biosimilar. We are just starting to see the entry of the biosimilars in the United States. Uh, they're not the penetration, for example, that I know Britain has. I mean, uh, they are highly penetrated in uh, in Europe and uh, and the United Kingdom. We are starting to see it. We're starting to feel it. But again, a lot of that is not going to be up to the physician. That's going to be up to the insurance companies and whether or not they have negotiated a better price for either the originator or for the biosimilar. So it's a, it, it still is not yet there. We haven't seen the big price drops yet. I'm optimistic that we will, but we have not yet seen. Okay, so tell us a little bit about this study and tell us what you were trying to achieve with this study. Well, before we start, I really, I have to put my glasses on. I apologize for any reflections. Uh, but I, before we start, I have to thank my, uh, my co-authors who did the yeoman's work on this. I helped with the data preparation interpretation, but really the nitty gritty, it was done by Nathan Chen, Richard Thielen, and Patrick Seeger. I knew that I would not have been able to do this without their assistance. So that should not go unmentioned. Uh, what we wanted to do is look at how long the patients, do patients take their medications? And how long do they take their medications? And is there a difference among the different classes of medications? Uh, we did this using uh, claims data, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, Peter, but uh, there are problems with using claims data. Uh, but it's, Can you explain to us the narrative in the market scan databases? Uh, it's a private, it, it is more than telling you it's a private database. I can't give you a lot of details. It's a commercial database. Uh, it's privately owned. They have access to 
a lot of insurance claims. If you look at the numbers, the majority of these claims, though, were commercial rather than Medicare. Medicare in the United States is uh, the it's the group that covers patients over the age of 65. I am very reluctant to call that elderly, especially given my current age. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer of elderly is 20 years older than whatever you are. So, uh, <laughs> but Medicare, they, so the claims are are lower and that will have a slight impact because the way the Medicare laws are written, uh, we tend to use a lot of intravenous drugs in Medicare patients because of the way they're reimbursed. I can get into details yeah. if you want. But so this is primarily commercial, which is going to be a younger population or a skew younger and have more access, won't necessarily have to get the IV drugs where they have to stay on. So what we did is we looked at them and we said, we can't go in and ask every patient. I mean, there were what, 63, over 6,300 patients. So we can't go in and ask every patient and monitor their, their drugs. So what we did instead is we went and looked at claims. Physician writes a drug, puts it in electronically, and then it has to get filled. So this looks at whether a drug was filled and then sees how often was it refilled. If it was refilled uh, within 60 days, it was considered to be that they were here. So they were taking the medication. If there was a gap, uh, I always block on this, I believe it's eight months, but it's six months, but don't hold me to that. But if there's a gap, uh, in that refill, then that is considered no longer taking or lack of persistence. So the persistence data is actually a negative. It's picked up as a reverse. So they didn't not take it, so they were persistent. Uh, so we went and looked at these uh, at these claims to see whether or not patients were filling their prescriptions and refilling the prescriptions. If they were filling and refilling and did that within 80% of the time, we considered them highly adherent. On the other hand, if they didn't, then we had different statistics. When they say that it's the, it's an RA diagnosis, can we expect that to be accurate? There weren't PSAs and ASs slid in there to get drug? You can, you can again, these are claims data. So you always have that concern is that this was a physician or what was it? Or somebody, but somebody entering into the electronic medical record the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis didn't distinguish zero positive or zero negative, and it is certainly conceivable they did not screen it down the line to see whether or not oh we treated them with RA it was RA and then a year and a half later someone said wait a second this is really psoriatic arthritis so no they okay. cannot do that these are purely claims data. So this is done okay. by ICD-10 code. So this was retrospective and it was over 12 months. The only other thing I'm curious about is time to market for each of the drugs. So Adalimumab have been around for a long, long time. Topher first, then a couple of years later, Barry, or fairly shortly after? I'm going to say a couple of years, not a long time, but a couple of years sounds about right. And then, and then UPA's, UPA's fairly recent, the last two. To the market and the newest on the market. Okay. And what year did you look this this group of patients? This was, I'm going to say uh, tw uh, 2018 to 2022. Yeah, I thought that was right. So, so over five years. Yeah. Over five years, and oral surveillance was the press release was January 21, right in the middle. So tell us a little bit about 
um, how you did it. What were the methods that you used? Again, the methods were purely data extraction. We went in, we we looked at the, uh, we went into the claims data. Let me get specifics rather than trying to do this on memory. We used this market scan, the demerited market scan research data, which again is commercial and Medicare. And then we wanted to see who had pharmacy claims. Did they have at least one diagnosis of RA and at least one prescription for one of the, the target medications? They had to have been on, they had to have had insurance for the entire period that we were looking at. And uh, we went to see you know, who was taking what based on pharmacy claims. And we wanted to see whether or not they were within 12 continuous months of starting the medication, whatever the medication was, did they were they on it for 12 months or not? How often did they refill? And also they had to be on insurance during that time. Now we adjusted for comorbidities, age, gender, the different payer types. Remember I said commercial versus uh, versus Medicare. Uh, and we wanted to know whether or not they were primary or secondary drugs. So were they, you know, which was their, were they on, what were they on in baseline? How, what, what previous patients had taken TNS before? So were they cycling or switching? Uh, and we looked at the numbers and then again, we defined this, this discontinued, well, we said, if they continued on, on medications, this PDC called PDC of greater than 80%, so they were refilling at an 80% rate, they were considered adherent. If they had more than a 60-day gap between refill and refill, they were considered non-persistent. That was considered discontinuation. And you didn't count the same person twice if they restarted or anything like that? No, we did not. Okay. Because exactly as you say, switching cycling is critical because it became last to market. And if you failed other choices and gone through a couple of jacks, you're more likely to stay on the newest last jack because it's the only one you got left. Yes, I mean that would be. Well, I was I was prepared for that because that would be one of the weaknesses. Is yes, you have. We did not. We did not control for serial uh, order of which jack it was. Had you failed two? Had you failed one? But you did a study very similar to this, Peter. In uh. In, in Australia, yeah. uh, and uh, you saw very similar results. And I guess the question always is: Do you did you switch because it was quote the better drug, and did you stay on it because it was quote the better drug, or did you switch to it and stay on it because well that's all you had? Yeah. So I can answer that question from the Australian point of view. Then we're going to have a look at at the um, results of your study. Um, when oral surveillance came out, the TOFA market changed significantly and a lot of patients were switched to UPA, which was sold as a Jack one preferred and therefore we don't have those issues. And in the monotherapy space, many people had already tried Actemba before they went to Jack's. So again, there was a selection bias, I think, a little bit more towards hanging on to that last one and switching to that last one for a variety of reasons that were historical as much as efficacy driven. So tell us a little bit about your findings then um, in your particular patient population. 
Okay, well, the patients were very nicely matched. So in terms of age and sex, everything was very similar. We had 683 who started with 37-32 who had been on adalimumab, 132-baricidinib, and 17-70 who were on tofacitinib. Again, consistent with what I would have expected the numbers to have been, and again, consistent with what you were alluding to, which is the order of the, of the JACs. Uh, we saw that, let's get down to the important data for me. Uh, at 12 months, uh, we had a greater, we had a greater number of patients initiating UPA, who uh, who had uh, a change of PDC, about 80%, uh, as opposed to adalimumab, which was 75%, Barry 58%, and Tofa 72%. And uh, the majority of these patients, so about 51% of patients on upadacitinib, hit this 80% mark. So they were not only taking it, but taking it with an 80% consistent, which is pretty much taking it on a regular basis. Uh, I take chronic medicines, and I know that every you know, everybody forgets a drug every so often. But th these patients were pretty consistent. Uh, it didn't matter that much, although there was a trend. I think that patients who were TNF naive tended to do better or more likely to be adherent. Again, I have to put a caveat on that because now with the United States, you cannot use a jack as before TNF, so that would be off-label technically. But the, the numbers show that the adherence was much better. And if you look at the persistence, persistence, uh, UPA persistence, uh, we had about 45% discontinued treatment versus 50 for Adelina, 50.4, Baricidinab, 59.9, and Tofa at 52. Uh, one of the things that always disappoints me with any of these studies, frankly, is regardless the high percentage of patients who discontinue their medications at one year period regardless i mean it's nice that patients stayed on UPA longer but we're still having what you said 50 percent yeah 45 percent of patients are stopping their medications and i think that's still a major problem now i wish i could say the reason they're stopping it were that well we cured them but uh, I, <laughs> I tend to doubt that. And again, something I should point out that we can talk about when we talk about strengths and weaknesses, but should point out now, we could not measure disease activity in these patients. So we, we couldn't say whether they were, they were responding, not responding, how were they responding? So it was simply based on the fact that they switched or didn't switch. And you've got some data that show the TNFIR patients, a lower proportion of them discontinued, consistent with this feeling that I failed a couple, I've got to hang on to the ones that I've got left. And poor old Barry at a half dose, I'm not surprised it had uh, the highest discontinuations. Yeah, Barry did not have the, the deck stacked against us by the FDA long time ago. Yeah, exactly. Go so ahead. tell us a little bit about um, your take-home messages and what you feel we should learn from studies like this, because you haven't looked at safety, because I don't think you can, and you haven't looked at efficacy, but you have looked at the likelihood of staying on a drug over a certain length of time. Right. So what we can take home from this is 
again, I this is uh, this is the glass half full, glass half empty. Uh, patients will stay on medications. We get over fifty, uh, about fifty five percent of patients with UPA will stay on. We also know that you know you were sort of alluding to, but there's also another interpretation, which is patients, whatever their first drug is, that's your best shot. And so if you fail your first drug, the chances of responding to your second drug drops, I think, exponentially. So if you were a TNF, if you were TNF naive and got any of the jacks, you're more likely to stand because you're more likely to respond. Uh, but you're seeing that you have patients, we have drugs, patients will stay on them. But again, the other interpretation is that despite really good medications, uh, we're not getting everybody. And there are a lot of reasons why, you know, I've been reviewing things for the upcoming ACR conference and difficult to treat RA or D2RA is, uh, D2TRA is now a big topic. The question is what's driving it. And I think we could have a, we could do another one of these podcasts on that alone was, you know, is it active disease, is it inflammation? Is it non-inflammatory pain? Is it cofactor? Your confounders, what what is it that's driving? So I think those are the major take-home message. There's another thing that I think we should mention, particularly with UPA, but you know the other companies are catching up. But that is the maker of UPA decision has always been very good about its patient support system. They 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 have excellent systems that have been in place for literally decades since they came up with that limo map. Uh, that other companies have mirrored, but I think have not been as robust or as well run as the one run by the UPA makers, which will also help maintain patients on medications. Because if you give patients support, you help them through the difficult, there's nurses they can talk to, there's financial support if they need it. If you if there's sampling, if you have that, it also has an impact. And I, we could not get that information from these data either. So following up those those take-home messages, do you think data like this, the Australian study and others, although we don't have prospective and we don't have safety, we don't have efficacy, would you be prepared to consider UPA first line before adalimumab based on these kinds of persistence adherence data if it wasn't for your restrictions? Uh, based on this and also just based on the clinical data, the clinical trial data, which in my opinion, I think the JAXs, if we take the oral surveillance off the table, uh, before that, I think there was a movement toward getting the JAXs much higher in the pecking order. So this, th these data persistence, uh, uh, they help, but I think one of the things that need to be done if we were to redo this, I would say we also should do it controlling for order of medicine. Because I think that's, a, you have to know, is it, if this is your last medication, you know, I mean, there's old data going way back when that at two years, 45%, I think about 40% of patients were still on methotrexate and it was low dose methotrexate. This is, you know, going back to the eighties, but they said on methotrexate because, well, that's all you had. So you yeah. had persistence of that actually was 25%. But even so, you had 25% of patients in two years on methotrexate, not necessarily because it was working, but it's because they all they had. So I think knowing the order 
is an important variable that we shall probably should have added. Probably if we redo something similar, I would recommend that we add that. Okay. And um, anything you plan to do in the future with this data or data similar to this? Uh, we don't have any plans as of right now to go back and relook at these. We're always looking at these data because, again, ultimately, uh, we're looking for we're looking for measures of patient satisfaction. You know that I'm big into patient measures. Uh, that that's sort of my thing, and patient satisfaction. And as much as we talk about, we want patients to you know we want them to have low disease activity, want them to be in remission. Ultimately. What we want is patients to feel good, you know, that, that, and to do well, and that is being driven somewhat by us, but also by the patients. And what we're seeing here is patients very often are voting with their feet. So if they don't like a drug, they don't like how they feel, they stop it. So I would like to see somehow picking up more patient satisfaction, patient responses. How do they feel about the drug? and trying to get something more direct rather than these indirect measures, which unfortunately, you know, doing it what I would like to do borders on the impossible, I'll, I'll admit it. Okay. So quite a large study, 6,300 patients, likely channeling bias, retrospective. We don't know much about safety or disease activity. Oral surveillance right in the middle, which would have undermined TOFA, very inadequate dose. So lots of issues with this, but hypothesis generating and suggesting that maybe a prospective forward-looking study with these other things might make a difference. Any final comments, Marty? No, I think we're still seeing, my biggest comments are we have good drugs. Uh, we're seeing persistence. We see patients do stay on these drugs, which implies that they are responding. Uh, most of these people were not original drugs, so they were failure of other drugs. So we're still having decent persistence of patients who have failed other drugs. Uh, we have a good order. We have medications that work one after another. Uh, whether or not we can take home that UFA is the better drug from this study, I think you pointed out some of the biases that would not prohibit it, but make us think twice. But at least we're getting information that patients are staying on it, notwithstanding the fact that, like you said, in the middle of this, we had the whole safety scare and the, the whole FDA changes, then people are still going to the uh, to the uh, the Jack Glass, which I personally think is appropriate. Okay, well, thanks again for your time, Marty. Um, if you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thanks very much, Marty. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it.